Hi, it's Chris Yeh, the co-author of Blitzscaling, and I'm here once again with my co-author and old friend Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn and investor at Greylock Partners. Now, things have changed a lot in the past six months. Back then, the NASDAQ was over 16,000. And as we record this, the index is a little over 11,000, so it's dropped nearly 30%. Venture capital firms are busy publishing their RIP Good Times memos, and many people, including me, are feeling scared and uncertain. So let's get right to it. Are we in a crisis? The short answer is broadly yes. That doesn't necessarily mean everywhere and everything, and everything is necessarily headed to a a deep thing. You know, there is obviously talk about recession, and I think that's certainly possible. But I think the probably the most certainty is we have had a a set of problems come to roost. You know, with the fact that you know, as a response to the pandemic, we were doing a huge amount of stimulus. You know, more stimulus per month than we were doing in all of 2008 in the financial crisis. In some months, we you know had the disruption of industries. We have a war that is ongoing and uncertain as to how it's going to end and where its possible escalations go, all of which leads to a a lot of market volatility. And obviously the most obvious representation of that volatility is within the public stock markets, as you were describing. But that actually, in fact, is an indicator that works its way all the way back through. Because even when you're in like private companies, you say, well, where did the funds come to invest in those companies? Well, those come to invest from various, broadly speaking, people who have a broader set of funds, but some of those funds are invested across the public markets. And so if those suddenly decrease 30% or more in value, there's liquidity crunches, partially because of what they're constrained by, partially because of, of where they are. So that means that all of a sudden capital becomes tighter across the entire range. Part of that making capital tighter means that businesses are investing less, cutting expenses, investing less in the future. That then compounds the entire ecosystem. So they may be buying less stuff, which means that other businesses, which are depending on that revenue, then are are more dependent. Or if it's like the pandemic and obviously in the retail or the hospitality industries, if you were in a hotel versus you know Airbnb, you know that kind of craters for that. It has effects on supply chains because these are other businesses and the transport businesses is all way of doing it. And it has effects on employees because employees need a certain amount of stability, fear for, you know, what does their job look like? Is their job going to be there? If they're hourly workers or gig workers or contract workers, what's going to help? And the short answer in all of this stuff is by default, various folks, especially in entrepreneurship, tend to be optimistic tend to go, well, this is a blip and we'll recover. And by the way, I was one of the people who was a very loud voice in 2008 to say, hey, look, if we if we just don't make the financial system break, we'll recover very quickly from this. And that was true. That was just, you know, it was like three months of, oh my God. <laughs> and then, oh, well, actually back to stability and growth. And, you know, and then, you know, by six months, you know, kind of back to in many, many parts, especially the tech industry, the normal, kind of like, let's grow the company, let's invest, let's hire people, let's expand our market, let's be predictable, et cetera. Now, the real risks here are the fact that it actually, in fact, is more likely to get worse than not. If you said, well, percentage chance worse, percentage chance better, because if you look at all of these things and the ongoing impact, you say, well, more likely to get worse. And then you say, well, is it, 
is it likely to be longer or briefer? And it's also more likely to be longer than brief. Just from the weather signs seem now. Now, there's always uncertainty. Like what we do know is we'll have volatility for sure and we'll have uncertainty for sure. And then you have to map that to your own circumstances. Now, this isn't, while starting with a we're in crisis and starting with all the, uh, this could be a problem, this could be a problem, this could be a landmine, this could be a landmine, this could be an explosion, or is not to say panic and run for the bunker, right? Because that's not necessarily even the smart play. But the smart play is to say, boy, we have really volatile and uncertain times with more of a likelihood of a decrease than an increase. So how do we first think through that as the implication about how we run our businesses, how we invest in our businesses, you know, how we work our businesses you know, on, on all of our institutions in order for that to happen? And one of the things you said really struck me, Reed, which is the impact it has on employees, basically on people's psychology. And I think that it really is, at the heart of things, the uncertainty that makes it difficult for folks. They're uncertain. They had gotten used to a certain pattern. Now, all of a sudden, things are different. They're not sure what's going to happen. There's a sort of defensive pullback. And to me, that says part of what you're also trying to do as you are figuring out what's going to happen going forward is you're trying to track what is going on with the psychology of the people around you. Because to some extent, there are these self-fulfilling prophecies. Yes. So that's part of the reason why, even if you're like looking at a potential bunch of uncertainties to the downside, panic is not the right action. I mean, it's almost like some of the stuff you and I were, a different lens to some of the things you and I were sketching in blitzscaling, which is, well, where have you a substantial increase in mortal risks, right? Okay, maybe address those earlier. And it can't be, well, we're going to have a global world war. If it gets that, then it's just reset the whole game and figure it out. There are places of risk, but it's like, okay, say we do have some slow, say we do have some slowness in revenue, say we do have some troubles in the supply chain. What are the things that we were doing in order to get through it? Where can you play offense, not just defense? And so one of the things that's particularly important as leaders of all types in this environment is to be very clear about the fact, A, you see the crisis, B, some reasoning and sharing about how it fits into what you're doing, and then what you're doing about it. Like, what's the ways that you're adjusting? Now, sometimes, by the way, that adjustment might be is, hey, we're just going to have a higher performance management and, you know, and and be uh, much more restricted on hiring. You know, sometimes it's going to be we're going to delay an action of business. And sometimes it gets more draconian, like we're going to stop this line of business. We, we were going to expand to Europe and we hired the first five people, but we're not going to do that anymore. We're not only just putting on an ice and keeping going a slow boat, which is possible, we're going to cut the boat because we need to focus on other things. And those kinds of things will also be uh, set to decisions. But when you Show that you've seen it, you're on top of it, and you're articulating the future just like you always must do as a leader. That's part of what helps people get more a sense of stability and certainty within what's going on and that people desperately need this because it's precisely the kind of reason why people get legitimately fearful when a recession happens or legitimately fearful when a war happens. And so as leaders, it isn't like, stay tough you know, this is just the wind and the rain and you have to have toughness. Look, it is the 
hey, these are challenging times, but it's kind of the here's challenging times and here's why we can navigate this successfully together and here's some of the thinking and here's some of the 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 plans. And, and by the way, I'm reflecting that I also see what the challenging times are so that people have increased confidence that you're not Captain Ahab in your pursuit of the white whale and you're just going to sink the boat. Now, I'm already starting to feel a little bit better, and I can't help but feel like one of the reasons you're able to approach this with some equanimity is because that folks like us who are, let's just call it mature, have lived through a number of these different periods of crisis. So how does this current situation compare to some of the other things we've lived through, whether it's the the dot-com bust, you mentioned the financial crisis in 2008, and let's not forget there was a brief, although now nearly forgotten, panic in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. How do the right moves to make right now differ from those previous crises? How are they the same? It's probably closer a little bit to the dot-com bust than it is the other two. The other two had the benefit of being brief. Now, the financial crisis was brief, but possibly with a big explosion, and it avoided the big explosion due to a lot of smart work from you know, the Obama administration, uh, Geithner, um, and a bunch of other folks, and Congress quick-stepping along and not fighting partisan battles, but focusing on you know, what's good for the country. It's one of the reasons why getting out of partisan battles is really important, because th- these sorts of things. Side comment. Now, part of the reason I think it's a little bit more like the dot-com bust is because some of the resets will be, look, well, what degree can we be fully investing in the future? How do we work through the the things that are broken, whether in industries or in debt or in other things? How do we do that both nationally and as part of a global system? Now, I hope and, and don't personally predict it will be bad as bad as the dot-com bust. The reason is part of the dot-com bust is the numbers just didn't add up. It's the, I'm selling you a dollar for 80 cents was the business model. And you're like, yeah, it just, that doesn't work at any level of scale. It just doesn't pull together. Or the fixed operating cost of my business would require uh, you know, me to, to 1,000x the size of my business to deal with the fixed operating cost with, with the marginal revenues and so forth. And those all had to be fixed. Now, some of those, like Webvan, got fixed with, oh, there's a different way to do it with grocery delivery and infrastructure and a bunch of other stuff. And so, you know, actually all of the delivery stuff started working and being interesting much later. So it wasn't like it was just, it was not appropriate right at the time. And so uh, there was a whole bunch of that stuff that just needed to be reset. And by the way, resets are very expensive. Part of the way that our economy works is we have this, this interdependency network and web that when we're all kind of rowing on it together, we're creating that kind of prosperity. Part of the reason why you know the whole Obama crew was very smart about dealing with the financial crisis in 2008 was that big deaths then can cause ripple effects that are very, very bad. And I think that we've had, had some of those learnings. I think that the corrections are not like, oh my God, we've got all these malformed entities that all need to go away and we need to reset from that. But by the way, we have the, well, but we had all this pain from the pandemic we have deferred, and that deferral, the bill comes due. And we still need to sort out how to make it happen. And some of that deferral is jobs and industry. Some of that deferral is 
mapping of talent and stuff. Some of that is a massive amount of stimulus and free capital that kind of works its way through. And also, by the way, to be clear, none of this is like I don't really pay attention to stock market today versus stock market last week versus stock market next week, because yes, that has this knock-on effect of availability of capital and investment, which is super important. But it isn't really a game of, well, we have to play the S&P to X number and so forth. It's really a kind of a question of, do we have a healthy functioning system by which it's getting more efficient, growing, creating products and services, creating employment, and all the rest of that that is the kind of concern of that. And so I think it's essentially between them. I mean, there's right moves on policy side, which is to make sure the system keeps functioning, right? Like, you know, broadly speaking, you don't have a lot of firms cratering. Like part of what created the Great Depression is all of a sudden all the banks went out or a bunch of banks went out and it was like, okay, now that's this whole system had to be kind of rebuilt. And that rebuild is partially the build of trust of people believing that they can be investing in the future, hiring a new person. Because if you look at most businesses, most businesses function well because they don't have extensive inventory. They have revenue that covers all of their employees. Or if they have, if they're in the if they're in the red because they're like a venture invested business, it's because they have a plan and future rounds of venture capital that get them to a place where they're in the black and and sustaining that. And but like if all of a sudden it dried up, like any business, all of a sudden your revenue gets cut by half. All of a sudden you're in a very weird place, cost structure, <laughs> you know, wise. And so that's part of the reason why predictability and all the rest and stability is, is an essential part of what makes business work. So there's a whole bunch of the policies that now, as the individuals, what you want to be doing is saying, well, for me, my industry, my place in the network, what's going on around me and what's the level of adjustment that I need to make. Now, most often, the people who beat the paranoia drum the highest go to say, okay, figure out the worst place it can be and go to that right now because that's the only way you can guarantee survivability. And that's actually not true. And that's part of the thing that's important is reason like not panic is actually, in fact, what you want to do is you want to figure out, well, what are the things that you would need to be monitoring to know when you need to move to that circumstance? Like what's the thing that would increase your conviction that that's the primary way to survive. Because by the way, if you can survive by saying like, you know, I was using the earlier, you know, exemplar of, hey, we hired five people, we're expanding into Europe. Oh shit, we can't afford expansion in Europe. If you can survive just well by having those five people run a little longer, prep, be much more efficient about what you're doing, get ready for next year, maybe the year after, you know, maybe you trim it to three people and you're still doing it. That might be the right answer for you. And that might be much more healthy for you as an organization and being ready for where you can get to and not just thriving, but surviving. On the other hand, maybe it isn't. And maybe that's the one you do. Or maybe it's like, no, no, we actually have to get rid of this entire line of business, which we already started getting customers and, and revenue on, but it simply doesn't work. But the piece of it is to say, don't automatically go to the sky is falling, but do go to the, okay, what would I need to monitor to know if I need to do something like this? How do I start that monitoring right now? And how am I in a place where I could go do that if I needed to? Right. So you might say, well, we should really refactor hiring. Like we should have net zero hiring. Like for every person we hire, it's only because we've someone's left or or someone's been managed out or something like that, or we've shut down this group. And so we have some more, more headcount. And by the way, part of what's we scary about it is there's no it's not like 
a, a simple a spreadsheet. There's no easy way to make those calls because are you monitoring the right things? Might something really happen in your supply chain or in your market that you can't really see, that you're not really fully predicting? The answer is yes. By the way, but the answer was yes to that. You know, earlier, just higher probabilities now, but but still, like, is it a higher probability of like two percent to four percent, or is it like two percent to twenty percent? Right? Those are very different kind of outcomes, and so. You want to figure out what you'd need to monitor, figure out how you'd be ready, and figure out how you got all that set up. And that's the first being defensive. And you know, some businesses very much should do that. Now, I'm hearing you talk about being defensive, being cautious. I'm sure there's a bunch of folks who are going to now chime in and say, you know what? You guys talked about blitzscaling and taking risks and growing fast. So now it sounds like blitzscaling's over. And they also said that, by the way, at the start of the pandemic. Now, Obviously, that is a gross mischaracterization of blitzscaling, and it is definitely not over. But how do you think blitzscaling changes in this current environment? Blitzscaling, as you know, is always about relative speed for capturing an opportunity and relative speed and paying a price in inefficiency. And the thing that you know is that a lot of people will be less emphasizing speed and more emphasizing you know, efficiency, stability, capital maximization. And so you can still be saying, well, I may see a market opportunity here where I can blitz scale and grab a lot of market share. Do I have a way to play capital forward in a way that's much smarter and I grab a market position or I grab a line of business that wasn't doable before? And this is actually, by the way, one of the things that's very good for the tech industry, which is one of the reasons I generally speaking for most people in tech industry say, don't overly panic is because, you know, if you look at the next decade, almost all major growth is still going to happen through technology, whether it's the the digital revolution transformation of existing industries or by tech companies. And so there's still a lot of capital that wants to be investing in it. Maybe that capital would be now more focused on AI and less focused on something else, <laughs> right, as a way of doing it. But they're like, okay, there's still like the industries of the future are still technological and still really matter. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone goes, well, you're in the tech industry, just let the good times roll, you know, keep simultaneously drawing down a lease on three new buildings, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No, 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 no. That's not the way to play it. But you might be going, actually, in fact, I do think there will be capital available here from in, in my industry, in the, in the technology side, various technology sides, and there will be investment. And all I need to do is show some things that the, that the people who do have liquidity would be most interested in. Now, it might be at lower valuations than you know, the good times of the last 13-plus year bull market. It might be lower amounts of capital, but that really just doesn't really matter. This is actually one of the things I frequently tell entrepreneurs is the game isn't, well, I managed to, to only have 20% dilution versus your 23% dilution. Who cares? Like the real question is, what's the value of the thing that you've created over time? What is its enduring value and so forth? And some of that's like size of revenue, size of customer base, you know, transformation of industries, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the thing that you're playing over time. And so you go, oh, well, I, I have an investment at a lower valuation. Well, great. I have the right partners. I have the right thing that I'm driving towards. That's the thing to do. That's the thing I did at PayPal. And that's the thing I did at LinkedIn. Those things were part of making that play smart on those things. And by the way, PayPal is a perfect example of this because, you know, started before the 
dot-com bust, had basically no revenue, raised $100 million on 500 pre on a promise. That used to be huge numbers. And the next day was the NASDAQ peak and started its descent and kind of navigating through it. And so, and by the way, part of what you look at is you say, okay, how do I continue to play offense in challenging times is precisely the question that you really want to get to. And that's part of the reason why start with the defensive, but then go to the opportunity, go to the way that you can differentially grow your business. And hence, you know, part of the layup to your asking the blitzscaling question, blitzscaling still very relevant to many companies and especially in the tech industry. Now, we spoke before a little bit about the employees, and we've certainly written a lot about management, both in our book, The Alliance, and in some other outlets. So what's your advice for the managers, executives, and leaders right now who are trying to lead their people? What are the people management elements versus the financial management elements? Well, we talked about it a little bit earlier, which is you got to presume that they're looking around, reading the business press, seeing what's happened, feeling nervous themselves, seeing the turbulent times, the you know Ukrainian war and what it might spill over to, you know, et cetera. And you got to presume you can't have a, you know, see no evil, <laughs> you know, you know, ostrich, you know, kind of move. So it's a good thing to explicitly talk about it. It's a good thing to explicitly talk about what that means. And like, for example, obviously if it's if it's super obvious that the jobs are all safe and everything else, then maybe you don't need to do it. But I think it's, you know, anything lower than super obvious, you know, I think I would basically say it's good to be clear. And by the way, the good to be clear, you know, they're always attending, oh, it's fine. And then a month later, saying, sorry, we have to get rid of you. That's not the kind of thing we recommend, <laughs> right? Good to be clear is, hey, look, we're working really hard on this. We think we have a real chance at this, but we have some risks would be the better way of putting it, <laughs> Right. Then like, no, no, we're fine. It's guaranteed. Uh, because by the way, once you break that, you've said that and you break it, then everybody that's there goes, oh, you'll lie to me, <laughs> right? Or you're dumb, right? You, you literally just had no idea. Basically, it sounds like you, as always, should be honest and open with your team. But you also need to follow the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy principle, which is don't panic. So don't panic, but be open and honest. Yes, now, you may get some hard questions. You should have answers to hard questions. Like you say, well, you know, we seem to be in a optional goods or services industry that when people start cutting their belt, they'll use us a lot less. What do we think about that? And you go, well, okay, here's, we have thought about it. Here's the way we're thinking about it. Or we're thinking about, like, you know, here's how we're, we're modeling it, working it. But feedback, welcome, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just the, the usual set of things in this. Now, we've talked about the entrepreneurs, we've talked about the employees, we've talked a little bit about financing. There's another group that's really critical, which are the boards of directors. And that is a relationship that every founder has to manage, especially during these tough times. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of pretty intense board meetings coming up. How should entrepreneurs work with their boards during this time? You know, boards will tend to look at this intensely from a capital perspective. They'll tend to look at it from a, generally speaking, overly so on this frequently in the absolute maximizing the chance that the business doesn't go out of business where actually in fact I think most often it should be the maximizing the future value by the way you have a higher percentage of going out of business now but you also have a higher percentage of being really really valuable later <laughs> right 
because you know taking some risks is the nature of it. And a little bit of the boards tend to be, oh, let's try to minimize risks. And by the way, yes, minimize any risk that isn't very valuable. Uh, but some risks are valuable. So uh, given that it's kind of a judge set of judgment calls, and you might have uh, a cast of characters on your board where they may encompass a bunch of different views, some more risk-taking, some more risk-averse, some having encountered downturns, some having not done it, some viewing that their responsibility is to beat the sky-is-falling drum and maximizing paranoia and others not to. Now, the baselines of how I recommend entrepreneurs work with boards, I think, is still true, which is make sure that you have some very strong board members that you're in close alignment with. If it's all of them, great, because part of when you have fractures or disagreements on the board, you know, like, for example, when I was on the LinkedIn board, I would go to David Z because, like, look, if we got to a handshake, I would at least have one strong external board member who would be you know, discussing and advocating the point of view that I had, like during the 2008 crisis or other kinds of things as equivalent for navigation, because there's a little bit of the, well, are the internal people blind? Do they want to, don't want to deal with the pain of, of how you have to make adjustments in these things? So you get some external voices on your side to doing that. Then if they're in disagreement with each other, then, you know, some of your uh, venture investors could be, you know, your advocate in what your plan of action is. Now, obviously, you obviously want to get that to the broad board bought in, but because you have all of the varied perspective that I was mentioning before, you could have much more intrinsic disagreement. And you shouldn't certainly leave it to the, well, I'll just, you know, I'll walk into the board meeting and say, so what do you guys think? Should we do some layoffs? You know, like that would be a terrible handling of a board. The board would actually probably think less of any executive who did that because what they want is, is that you've seen the world, that you have a smart plan, that you're you're proposing it. You know, as normal, they ask the questions they fear you may not have asked. So a lot of entrepreneurs and CEOs walk in saying, and here's our growth plan, our blitzscaling plan. And they go, well, have you thought about the volatility and the downside possibilities and so forth? And they want to make sure you've really gone through that because that's one of the things they've been worrying about to make sure you've seen the possible landmines. And so you, you should present in a way that you show that you've seen it, you've thought about it, you've given it, given it serious consideration, and it has influenced what your particular plan is. And so it requires leadership. Now, and then to speak to board members, if all you're doing is beating the drum of how you might die, you're orienting your entrepreneurs and CEOs on the downside game, not the offense game. And ultimately, we're all in this to play the offense game. Now, that doesn't mean you don't look at it just like we open this podcast very intensely on the kind of like, okay, let's make sure, hence monitoring, hence what are the places where we would need to move to click with that? How do we measure it? How do we know it? Are we there now? Et cetera, et cetera, is the first questions that you ask when you get there. But you're looking to get through it to playing offense as smartly as you can. Now, you touched a little bit already in mentioning things like dilution and hiring freezes and the like. Entrepreneurs have gotten very used to, over this long period, not having to worry about things like flat or even down rounds. And that may change in the relative near future. So how do you think founders should be working through this with their existing investors, their team members, in this extremely different fundraising environment? So, you know, you go, okay, volatility likely more down than up in the near future, unknown how long the future of this is. What does that mean what you should do for financing? So like, for example, if you said, well, I knew I was going to need to be financing 
in six to nine months. It's like, well, start figuring that out now, <laughs> right? You know, advance the clock, longer time frames, possibly like take a down round earlier, right? Trim your burn rate, figure out alternative financings, you know, whether it's venture debt or, you know, sources of capital that are not in your normal thing, like, oh, we'll get strategics or other kinds of things, you know, focusing on, you know, you might like, even though most of us, especially in the consumer, tend to focus on growth, you might say, well, let's also make sure we've got some good, you know, revenue growth. Now, revenue growth, challenging for the reasons that we talked about earlier, which is everyone's focused on their burn rates and capital, but it's like, okay, what are some of the things we could do? And sure, we might take off in a selective trade, we might take some growth for revenue, although, by the way, growth is still very important relative to financing and all the rest. But one portfolio company says, oh, I've got three years. He's like, well, okay, you don't necessarily need to do anything right now. <laughs> right? You might not say, boy, we're going to blitz scale and double our expense rate. Well, I suppose the doubling it, we might increase it 20% as we're going and, and kind of figuring out what the opportunities are. Another one might be saying, okay, we've got, we thought we were going to start needing to finance in three to six months because it would take you know six to nine months to do a financing, then it's like, well, look, let's let's steer into it right now and navigate it because it may very well be that in our, any time frame that we're considering it, it's more much more likely to be worse than it is to be better. And then what are the signs that help you navigate that? We spent most of this time, as we usually do, focusing on the point of view of the entrepreneur. But let's take a minute to talk about the individual professional. You and our friend Ben Kaznoka recently published the updated 10th anniversary edition of your book, The Startup of You, which helps individuals manage their careers by thinking like an entrepreneur. So what advice do you have for those individuals right now, especially those folks in the class of 22 who are just graduating into this market? So, you know, one of the things that we're talking about in The Startup of You is, is adaptability is the new stability. Most people tend to want to have stable. They want to have a job. They want, you know, the necessary economics are part of it. That's totally rational. And it is the condition, unless you're lucky enough to be born into a community or a family where you have a big safety net, it's the, it's the rational condition. So then you go, well, what does adaptability mean the new stability? It doesn't mean like, oh, let me go get a job at big company X. It might. I mean, by the way, there's, no, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But you might go, well, actually, in fact, it's the... Just like we've been talking about businesses, say, well, actually, in fact, what it means is I need to be, you know, have my antennas out because, like, when I went and joined the startup, the startup's not working, I can jump to another startup or jump to another business. Or I'll have something of my, you know, kind of the classic, a little bit of my side hustle going, which is I'll be doing a little bit of consulting in the side and, and do that as kind of insurance. Or, you know, working with a couple of my friends on what our startup idea is. Because maybe actually uh, we have a really interesting idea and we'll go get it financed and we'll play that through because there will be seed and series A financing for tech stuff, other things, you know, for a while. And so part of what adaptability is the new stability is to be thinking about like, okay, how do I have options? How do I make sure the options are present? How am I monitoring? How am I playing hard on the good options, but but ability to shift if I need to? And then how does that translate into how I'm spending my time and working. And, you know, generally speaking, in these kinds of environments, it generally speaking means that you need to focus on work more because you're, you are, you know, kind of broadened out. If you are lucky enough that you say, I don't need economics, this might be a good time because it requires working more to say, hey, take that sabbatical you've always been thinking about. Maybe, maybe not. But, but generally speaking, that's the set of things for 
making adaptability the new stability. Well, Reed, thank you for taking the time to provide some calming, but also, I think, very realistic perspectives on what's going on right now. And we'll probably be coming back to you in the coming months to get some updates and to continue taking advantage of your advice as we go through. Always. Well, that concludes this episode of Gray Matter. You can subscribe to Gray Matter on soundcloud.com slash graylock-partners. You can also find new episodes and blog posts on graylock.com, and you can follow Graylock on Twitter at graylockvc. I'm Chris Yeh, and on behalf of Reed Hoffman, thank you for listening.